You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a new podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft's security engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft security. If you enjoy the podcast, have a request for a topic you'd like covered, or have some feedback on how we can make the podcast better, please contact us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com or via Microsoft Security on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, Natalia. Welcome to another episode of Security Unlocked. Hello, Nick. How's it going? It's going really well. We've got some some early data, some early data hot off the presses from our listeners. I thought we might we might jump straight into that instead of finding out what smells have permeated my, my basement. Is that... <laughs> Great to hear it. Yeah, so we we just got some data coming out of the the various podcast hosting platforms, and we have uh, we've been listened to in over sixty countries, which is I I mean that's amazing. That's if my math's correct, that's a quarter of all uh, of all sovereign nations on earth. So that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, we're making headway. I feel like global just makes it sound like such a big deal. We're currently listened to in Estonia, Kazakhstan, the UK, both of our father slash motherlands, Australia and Poland. So it's great to see the representation. Thank you all. I want to list a few more because I just want to make sure that the few listeners that I think are there, they're getting a shout out. Myanmar, Azerbaijan, Albania, Haiti. Thank you so much to all of you listening to the podcast. On today's episode, we speak first with Sharon Shah, who is a principal PM in the cloud security team. This will be the first of five or six interviews we're going to have over the next few episodes with authors and contributors to the Microsoft Digital Defense Report, the MDDR. Uh, You can download that at aka.ms WAC Digital Defense. This is what I like to call the spiritual successor or the successor to the Security Intelligence Report, the SIR, which is a document that Microsoft has produced for the last 15 years on trends and insights in the security space. Natalia, you've, you've read the report. You know, what would you say to folks that are sort of thinking of downloading it and giving it a read? Well, first off, the machine learning attack section is definitely one to read. It's fascinating to read about the new attacks that there are, model poisoning, model inversion. We'll touch on them in future episodes, so I'll leave it at that. But lots of new goodness. And just in general, the MDDR is a huge effort within Microsoft. It's highly collaborative, and it brings together a ton of experts who really know their stuff. And so you'll see just that breadth of knowledge and intelligence when reading the report and in all of our upcoming episodes, since we'll be spotlighting a number of experts who were contributing to the report. We also, in addition to the MDDR, will have Emily Hacker on the episode, who is a threat analyst, and she'll talk about her journey from literature major to cybersecurity realm. Awesome. We hope you uh, enjoy the episode. Sharon Shah, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Security Unlocked podcast. Hey, everybody. Thank you for inviting me. 
Oh, you're very welcome. We're, we're happy to have you. Could you um, give us sort of a brief introduction to yourself? What's your title? Tell us about what you do day to day in your team, sort of the, the mission and, and goal of your role and the, and the team that you run. Sure. So I'm the principal program manager, which manages the PM team in Azure Security Data Science team. And we have six PMs with 30 data scientists. Our day-to-day work is using machine learning to write threat detections and other features that are protecting Azure, protecting our customers, and also protecting machine learning models. So that's, that's a team of 30 data scientists, sort of machine learning experts that are protecting all of Azure and Azure customers. Is that right? That's right. So actually including more than Azure customers because our products and our solutions applies to on-prem system as well as as a cloud like AWS and the GCP. Microsoft had recently published the Microsoft Digital Defense Report in which we talked about machine learning and security. And as I understand it, you contributed to this report. And one of the themes was something you just touched on, which was preparing your industry for attacks on machine learning systems. So can you talk a little bit about how the cybersecurity space is viewing these machine learning attacks, what's happening, what are the measures organizations can take to protect themselves against these attacks? Yeah, as we all know, you know, machine learning takes an increasingly uh, important role in the operations and in our day-to-day life, right? It applies to not only like a facial recognition, or voice, or even apply in many medical devices or analysis. So it's just embedded in our day-to-day life nowadays. But, uh, you know, the attacks, cyber attacks to the machine learning system and the machine learning models, uh, we're just getting to know these. And it's more and more prevalent Based on our research, we did a survey to uh, 28 large customers, enterprises. 25 told us they have no idea, you know, what are the attacks, (laughs) you know, it's there and uh, to the machine learning system. So that's kind of alarming, right? And uh, for example, the model model poisoning attack and um, real world example is attack can manipulate the training data to make a street sign classifier that learn to recognize a stop sign as a speed limit. So that's really dangerous if you think about it, right? If you're driving a Tesla and you're supposed to stop, I'm not saying Tesla is vulnerable to this attack, but this is kind of the, you know, model po- an example of a model poisoning attack. So, uh, you know, we talked about the the report. So the Digital Defense Report, the Microsoft Digital Defense Report that was released, it's a pretty lengthy document. It's full of uh, a lot of incredible guidance. You and your team specifically contributed and what we're talking about on the on the podcast today to the uh, section within the state of cybercrime, which is which is called machine learning and security. And as mm-hmm. you as you just touched on that, you know, the very first of the four trends that are called out there is simply just awareness and 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 preparing. I want to just touch on that stat that you mentioned just a minute ago. So 
you surveyed 28 organizations, 25 of those 28 just said that they don't, they don't have a plan for, they don't have tools, they're not prepared for adversarial or ML. Is that an accurate takeaway? Yeah. So, so what do we We've seen at this moment is a security team and a machine learning team are running on two parallel orbits right now. So they no, do not interact. They are doing you know, their own things, not aware of security on machine learning system. Yeah, so the first step we, we have been putting in a lot of effort is the community awareness. And we definitely need community help to pull those orbits together, finally, you know, interact. Right. So that's a call to the community. Like, let's raise the awareness and work together to first aware of these, then build some tools, trainings to get, you know, our defense up. <laughs> you have red team and a blue team. Got right. It. So to get our defense up uh, to the speed. And then, and then you mentioned a few types of sort of attacks there against models. Model stealing, I think, is relatively self-explanatory. Model inversion uh, is interesting. It, it, the way you explained it, it sounds like it's the ability to sort of reverse engineer or extract the data out of a out of a model. The one that I sort of want to touch on here is is sort of model poisoning. So you you explained it as poisoning a model so that instead of seeing a stop sign, if it was trying to identify road and, and traffic signs, it may see something else. It may see a, a speed limit or, or mm-hmm. something. How does that happen? How do, do we know how model poisoning works? Have we seen it in action? Have we been able to sort of post-mortem any successful model poisonings to understand how it, how it actually happens? Yeah, there are multiple ways to have the model poisoning happening because, the you know, like I described it's about manipulating the training data, right? So if you have access to the training data directly, you could, you know, uh, manipulate it. But that, you know, on purpose, that needs some machine learning knowledge to do it, right? So you can also, let's say if you, uh, you know, at first glance, you don't really have the access to the poisoning data, but then you have access to the, you know, network. So you can do a traditional main, the middle attack to disrupt the training. And uh, there are two kinds, you know, integrity attack or availability attack. So if you disrupt the training model to run the training effectively, this is basically kind of attack from availability point of view. And if you change the data, like the uh, street sign classifier, to make it, you know, read it as a speed limit, that's called a kind of an integrity attack. So there are some multiple ways to do that. So how are we thinking about assessing the trustworthiness of an ML system? It sounds like it's clear that we're still at the awareness stage and we're partnering with organizations to build out frameworks. What elements are we bringing into these frameworks or uh, standardizations to measure trustworthiness of ML systems and identify whether they've been impacted? Yeah, we came up kind of an amendment to our, at Microsoft, uh, an amendment to our security development 
development life cycle, one of the more um, process is threat modeling. So we have machine learning threat detection, not threat detection, you know, the threat modeling for, for machine learning systems. That's add specific guidelines, questions, you know, how do you do threat modeling on the machine learning system to identify, you know, those potential attack surfaces and the potential risks in, in the development process. So that's the first step we're taking to, this is also part of our awareness effort, right? When you are doing the regular threat modeling and you are asked for these questions, for example, if your data is poisoned or tampered with, how would you know, right? <laughs> so then the uh, follow-up question is, you know, do you have telemetry to detect a skewed data in quality in your training data, right? And uh, are, you, are your training from user-supplied inputs? If yes, right, what kind of input validation or sanitization are you doing? Or if your training is against an online data store, so what steps do you take to ensure the security of those connections? You know, there are long list of questions we ask in our, you know, regular threat modeling like that. We actually published the document on our Microsoft security engineering site. It's a public documentation with all these questions for uh, the, com- you know, community to reference. Sharon, what should customers, Microsoft customers know about how we are securing our AI systems and machine learning models that are in production. I mean, obviously, obviously we're doing everything we can. We're investing heavily, but this is a very new area. Right, right. Um, yeah, so we, uh, like I said at the very beginning, we work with at a Microsoft uh, scale, right? And the Satya and the Scott Guthrie, Rajesh, they are all aware of their effort. So we'll work with the responsible AI at Microsoft-wide. Also, uh, we have an Ether working group that focus on, you know, uh, responsible AI and uh, adversary AI. So it's a Microsoft effort to make sure at our engineering part, we are building a secure machine learning system. And aside from protecting our machine learning systems, how are we taking this technology, taking machine learning and applying it to our security solutions so that we can empower security teams? Good question. We're building solutions, detections in our cloud-native same product, Azure Sentinel. So it's not being released yet, but uh, you know, we are working on it. So that, you know, our customers can use the technology based on our experience, based on our study, and, you know, to apply to their machine learning systems to at least, you know, detect those attacks to their machine learning system. And another end is we have red team actively, you know, doing red teaming activity to the machine learning system. And we, you know, also keep learning the new attack techniques in that way. 
Got it. So the the first so we've covered that first trend here, which is which is really about awareness of this new category of this new of this new sort of threat of attacks on machine learning systems. I might move on to the the second of the four trends that are in the report, and that one is is talking about uh, leveraging machine learning to reduce alert fatigue. Can you talk a bit about that trend for us? What What's happened in, in 2020 or sort of in the last sort of 12 months around how ML has advanced and the use of ML to help reduce alert fatigue? Yeah. So, you know, when you look at the security operations, right, the security analysts in every organization are dealing with alert fatigues. Uh, I think uh, if you are working in security operation field, you know, you, you have to deal with thousands alerts from different products like uh, antivirus or like uh, Parado network, you know, firewalls, and then EDR solutions, XDR solutions, WAF, all these kind of security solutions, just sending alerts, like uh, thousands alerts. So a typical like a security analyst in the security operations center for an uh, S500 enterprises, they get like uh, about, you know, 2000 alerts they have to deal with like daily. That's obviously cause uh, lots of issues, right? So on the other end, if you are not able to go through all these alerts and you may drop off the real attacks, but all these alerts, there are lots of false positives. So there is a survey saying like some products generate like more than 50% false positives or even 70% false positives. That really preventing the defender team, the SOC analysts, you know, to deal with the true attacks, real threats. So one of the reasons, right, why are all these false positive is because the traditional rule-based approach doesn't adapt to the change of the environment. The advantage of machine learning is it learns the environment, right? It adapts to the change of the environment. And so we are looking at, uh, like in the Azure Sentinel, we have this machine learning threat detections called a fusion. Fusion technology use like uh, three different machine learning algorithms and a powered by the graph and use kill chain and use different machine learning algorithms. We basically correlating signals from multiple products, multiple sources, like uh, your identity management system, your firewall, your EDR, your endpoints, all source, sources of data, and look all these anomalies and chain them in together in the sense of the kill chain, you know, threats and the kill chain sense, and fire like a high fidelity alerts. So give you an example, if uh, you find a suspicious login from a Tor browser, meaning, you know, an anonymous IP address that, and then this is maybe not that suspicious. It's suspicious, but it's not meant in a high fidelity, like this account is compromised or this login is malicious, right? But then if you followed by a, like an unusual mass download or 
setting up a mailbox forwarding rule in Outlook and forward all the your company, you know, business email to a Gmail or something like that, those activities. If you chain those activities together, you can see, obviously, there is something like a data exfiltration or C2 attack, you know, depending on different signals, right? So this is how we use machine learning to alert, reduce alert fatigue and give you high confidence and high fidelity alerts allow the security analysts to focus on, you know, these, their energy to investigate and mitigate those threats. Yeah, with the volume of signals and the need for specialized skill sets, data science skills to develop these ML models, that brings us to a third theme, which is democratizing ML. So can you talk a little bit about you know, what our ask is to the security community and how we view democratizing ML as a next step in the progression? You know, we've seen uh, in the industry, right? We're short of security experts. We are definitely short of, you know, data scientists. To build a good, high-quality threat detection, we need both knowledges. Security knowledge as well as machine learning knowledge. And going further, we also need domain knowledge, which I mean industry domain knowledge is if it's a financial industry or healthcare or energy or, you know, Microsoft, we have like southern security experts, right? For IT, info, uh, you know, information technology. We also have, you know, hundreds of uh, data scientists, like my team, you know, have 30 different, 30 full-time data scientists, right? So we also working like across the team, you know, we're working with our threat intelligence team, we're working our security analyst team, leverage their knowledge. So when you use the product we produce at Microsoft, like the threat detection, it's the it's the result of multiple team, multiple efforts, you know, the all the expertise put in there. But we don't claim we know everything. And like I said, a generic machine learning no, uh, algorithm may work well in one environment, but less effective in another environment because of some special circumstances in that you know, organization. And we fully realize, you know, there is a lack of resource of data scientists in the enterprises. So what we want to do is enable security analysts. They are expert in security and expert and they are domain expert in their organization to be able to improve the built-in machine learning models in our products, for example, Azure Sentinel, to improve quality of the model, produce better signal in their environment. So this is the effort of democratizing machine learning in the SOC ML. So we are, we are building this interface and this technology and in the product. So security analysts can customize our machine learning models without any machine learning knowledge. 
And Sharon, that that uh, leads us to sort of the fourth and final sort of big trend that's in the report. And again, this is this is the Microsoft Digital Defense Report 2020, which you can download at aka.ms WAC Digital Defense. And Sharon, that that sort of final trend uh, that's discussed here is is about leveraging anomaly detection for post breach detection. We had Dr. Josh Neal on the podcast, I think, in our second episode. Uh, I think his team is uh, is actively involved in this area. Can you talk a little bit about the this sort of final trend that's that's called out in the report? Yeah. So behavior changes over time, right? And uh, that's the beauty of machine learning. So machine learning model, we observe the normal behavior, and then we signal if there's anomalous behavior happens unusual activities. And uh, these are important for, you know, the post-breach detection. If we observe anything abnormal happening, and we, like I said, we stitch all these abnormality together and then find those strong attack-relevant incidents. So there are supervised machine learning models and unsupervised machine learning models. And when we found out, because supervised machine learning models requires labeling, and this put a lot of demand on our customers. So we are actually now switched to more unsupervised method to detect those behavior changes or abnormal behavior changes that will like automatically adjust and profile a user or a machine or IP, we call those all of them are entities in the customer environment and learn those normal behavior versus abnormal behavior. So that's how we you know, use anomalies to detect those post-breach detections. And because of these kind of unsupervised machine learning model, most of the models we are able to do streaming fashion because it doesn't require training. So we'd be able to do streaming fashion, which is bring us, you know, to the meantime to detect in the milliseconds, right? This is important. If you, you can detect a potential compromise in near real time, we want to do that, right? Otherwise, like, uh, oh, nine months later or maybe two days later, you, <laughs> you, 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 <laughs> you find that in a compromise, right? So yeah, this if, it's is not, a, if it's not instantaneous, it's sort of useless. I know, yeah. So this is really like a, a truly important, you know, um, advantage in the technology. Like we are able to detect those anomalies in a real time or near real time and stitch them together as quickly as possible. Well, thank you, Sharon. There's a lot in, in, the, in the five pages of the machine learning and security section of the report. There is a lot of content to cover and we've really just touched on, on each of those four trends. I highly encourage folks to, to download the report. We'll make sure the link is in the show notes. If you're someone that can hear links and remember them and put them into your browser, it's uh, aka.mswac mm-hmm. digital defense. Yeah, what I wanted to say is, you know, it's very exciting, you know, that we are uh, working on really this, you know, important area and uh, protecting uh, our customers with 
machine learning technology, right? And there are lots of um, new areas and new territory we haven't, you know, <laughs> explored. So I would really, you know, call for the community together to work with us and to innovate in this area. So, you know, our customers are better protected. That's great. Yeah, it'll be a group effort. Well, Sharon, thank you for joining us today. It's been great to hear about the progress we've made and the progress we are making in machine learning and security. So really appreciate you walking us through this and sharing the great work your team is doing. Thank you for the opportunity. And now let's meet an expert from the Microsoft security team to learn more about the diverse backgrounds and experiences of the humans creating AI and tech at Microsoft. Today, we're speaking with Emily Hacker. Thank you for being here, Emily. Thank you for having me. Well, let's kick things off by just talking a little bit about your day job. So can you tell us your role at Microsoft and what your day-to-day looks like? Yeah, definitely. So I am a threat intelligence analyst on the Tiger team on Microsoft Defender. And I spend my days doing a variety of things. So specifically, I have a focus on email threats. So I gather a lot of information about email threats from open source intelligence, from telemetry, from internal teams. And I combine all of these sources to try and find the email threats that are impacting our customers the most and to put in proactive measures to stop those from impacting customers. I want to know what the Tiger team is. What's a what's a Tiger team? <laughs> a Tiger team. It does stand for something. Threat intelligence, global. Oh. <laughs> is it a, is it a backronym? We we all sitting in yeah, a room. Yeah, oh, for and sure, definitely like, a backronym. Cool name. There and is, someone's it like definitely a Tigers are cool. Yeah. Oh, nice. I, I feel very so confident. You, 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 made, you made it work. Yeah. You made it work, but it's not necessarily memorable. <laughs> no, we just have a lot of like tiger imagery and logos and stuff related to our team now. And so we know what animal we are, but we might not know what we do. <laughs> I love that you guys went all in on it. Are there any other teams based on like animals of the Serengeti? No, of the Serengeti. <laughs> there is, so there's a fishing org that I'm dotted line to that we recently backronymed as well. And now it's Osprey, like the bird. So I'm just, I'm like Ooh. a member of the animal kingdom here. <laughs> yeah, that's like a sea eagle, isn't it? I think they're pretty scary looking though. I that's think that the was the name of like the big marine helicopter, the helicopter. I think in the yeah. British Navy. And that's what I usually think of first. Yeah. I think it's the one, the helicopter that like maybe folds up or something. It's got the wings that fold out. Is that right? Like it's sort of like half a plane. Yep. It's like mm-hmm. a VTOL. I believe Is so. it a VTOL? It's fancy looking for sure. Got it. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thanks. Uh, we're, we're done here. <laughs> No, I think you were, so I'm sorry, I derailed us by asking what Tiger stood for. I was going to start with a rather broad question, so I'm glad we did Tiger first. So you spend your day-to-day on email threats. Mm-hmm. Do you see any patterns that you'd like to elucidate the audience on? So patterns, I mean, we see a lot of different like techniques and patterns and stuff that we're tracking for sure. Um, I think with like we look at both malware threats being delivered by um, email and we look at phishing slash like credential theft um, threats being delivered by email. And one of the things that is, I would say maybe a pattern that I've noticed is that a lot of times the techniques that we see between the two are kind of different. So it's 
it's usually noticeable to us if we're looking at certain techniques that it's definitely malware versus phishing. And then we've also recently expanded more of our deep dive into business email compromise, which often is completely wholly different from the other two types of threats that I just mentioned. Can you describe why business email compromise is often treated wholly different? What is the distinction between that and the other two threats? Yeah, definitely. So business email compromises, a lot of times it's totally different from malware and phishing because it won't contain any links or attachments. So it's totally social engineering based, which is interesting to me personally. I find it super interesting because it's basically just the the quote unquote bad guys, if you will, tricking um, people into wiring them money. So when we look, when we're looking at malware threats, a lot of times they're going to use links or attachments that lead to obviously malicious code being downloaded onto the machine. And the emails themselves might be, we've seen completely blank emails. We've seen emails that use really generic lore, such as like, please view the attached invoice. Of course, the attached invoice is fake. And with phishing, similar, we'll see lures such as, um, actually, we see a lot of their like, please join this like Zoom call or this Teams call or whatever. They're going to try and make the recipient click on the link. But with business email compromise, it's totally done in email. So the, the threat actor will just send an email. A lot of times they will either compromise, as the name suggests, they will compromise one of the accounts of a individual who works at a victim company in accounting or wire transfers or that kind of job. And they will send emails from that account. Or uh, another thing I've seen is they will have some kind of methodology of watching emails on a victim's email network. So either via some OAuth phishing that they had done earlier, or perhaps they got credentials to the email inbox. But then when it actually comes time to send the malicious email rather than using the user's email, they'll create one that looks almost identical, but just change a couple of characters. So they might register a domain, for example, if someone was trying to use my email address instead of Microsoft.com, they might register Microsoft with a zero.com and then use my exact username. So to, to an unsuspecting victim, a reply to a thread will look exactly like it came from me. But then the the malicious emails themselves aren't going to contain links or attachments. They're literally just going to be the bad guy saying like, hey, can you wire me these $100,000 or more? Um, send it to this bank account. And since there's already a level of trust with the um, victim, because it's usually coming either from a legitimate email account that they're used to doing business with or one that's faked to look very similar to it, these are super successful. The people are wiring money to attacker accounts and there's no malicious code involved. There's no phishing link involved. It's completely social engineering. Sorry, that was a really long answer. I got apparently like really into that. Sorry. <laughs> Emily, I wonder if you could tell us how you uh, found your way to Microsoft. Have you been in security for a long time? What was your what was your path into your role? And, and how did you find yourself in the, in the security industry? Definitely. So it's um, definitely a bit of a, a roundabout, interesting story. So it goes back a ways to when I first went to college, I guess. So I have a degree in English and communications and a minor in journalism. And I had every intention of being a newspaper reporter. I worked for my school's newspaper for a while. And then I worked for the city newspaper for the, the city that I went to college in. And upon graduation, I decided maybe I wanted a job that had a little bit more normalcy. I really love newspaper reporting, but it was a lot of late nights (laughs) in the newsroom and stuff. So I ended up going into technical writing. And my first job out of college, I was actually writing software manuals. So it was pretty 
dry stuff, I'll admit, where I was writing the manuals that people would refer to if they were having trouble. This was specifically for software for car dealerships, where the stuff I was writing was like, press the F5 key to submit, or like that level of manuals, like those very dry manuals. And I wasn't all that excited by that work. It's Some people love it, and I understand why, but I didn't. So I was lucky that a girl that I had worked with at that job, I had only worked with her for a couple of months, and she had gotten another, another job. Well, she contacted me about 10 months later and said that she had gotten promoted and wanted to hire me to backfill her. And she said it was a tech writing job, but it was totally different from the type of tech writing that we had been doing previously at the company. So I gave it a shot. I applied and I went to work with her. And what it was, was I was actually the tech writer for a threat intelligence team at an oil and gas company. But it was my first foray into security And I realized it was not something I even knew was a thing, honestly, before. I didn't realize cybersecurity was kind of a field that people could work in. And it was very exciting to me. And I remember when I, the first year or so that I worked there, everything was new and exciting. You know, like, oh my God, threat actors, what are those? This is so exciting. Nation states, oh my God, that this is a thing that's real. And it just all seemed like this movie script, except it was real. And after a bit of doing the editing and stuff for their reports, the reports that I was editing were very interesting to me. And I would ask questions because I needed to, to understand the report in order to edit it, but also just because I was legitimately interested. Like, how did you do this analysis? What is this? And I quickly decided I liked their job better than mine. So I decided I was going to learn from my coworkers. And I am extremely lucky that the team of threat intelligence analysts that I was working with are some of the best people I've met in my life at that job and were super open to helping me learn. If I would say like, hey, what are you working on? Can I kind of sit with you and, and learn from you? It, everyone was always just like, yeah, let's do it. Like, let me show you what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. So I learned from them and I eventually, there was a, a time where we were a little short staffed as is common in security. And we were in charge of, checking the phishing email inbox. So when users at the oil and gas client that I was working for would submit uh, potentially suspicious emails, they would all go to an inbox that we had to analyze to determine if they were malicious or not. And that was, it was a time consuming job and we just didn't have enough people on the team to do it and the rest of our work. So I kind of volunteered to help out. And that was how I got to learn how to do actual analysis. And I had job duties related to analysis So I learned pretty much completely on the job from my coworkers. And then from there, I did that for about a year, maybe a little bit more after that. And I decided I wanted to move to Seattle. I was living in Texas during that. And I was very interested in living up here in the Pacific Northwest. So I left that job and got a job as a security researcher at a security vendor here in Seattle. So it gave me that other side of security that really allowed me to see the full picture of both having worked in a SOC, having worked at a vendor. And then I did that for just over a year. And this position at Microsoft opened up and I I actually applied. I, I don't want to say as a joke, but I didn't think I was going to get the job. I didn't, as a stretch. As a, yes. Almost like as a, well, it would be like if I applied to be like, president of the United States or something, you know, it's one of those <laughs> where I'm like, oh, wouldn't that be great to submit application? thinks never again about that moment. And then I was shocked to say the least when I got called for an interview and even more shocked when I got offered the job. So that was back in March. Um, So I've only been here for a few months and I am 
loving it, obviously, so far. And what is really exciting to me is how this job is kind of, I get both the focus of having like in-point telemetry like I did at my first job and phishing email telemetry. And then I also have the wider birth of just a lot of data and open source intelligence like I did at my second job. And now I have them both here, as well as getting to work with some of obviously the smartest people in the industry. So just very exciting. And I still am a bit amazed that I uh, work here. So when you were when you were writing manuals in for the car dealership and you know probably thinking about what was going to happen in the future was there a little kernel was there a little nugget of it would be awesome to be at a company like microsoft and doing cool nation state security investigatory stuff absolutely not i didn't even know that this was a job opportunity like the fact that this is a job that people do and now that i do like when i had first graduated and gotten my first job out of college i there was just so much about the world that I didn't know, but there was so much about careers that I didn't know. I didn't even know this was an option. And I do remember distinctly, like I wasn't a huge fan of that job, but I didn't know what else was out there. And I was like, it just feels, everything's very overwhelming when you're 22 years old and you're like, what is, what is life? Like, is this what I have to do forever? So I'm just glad that I now know that this is an option. What is life? <laughs> Guess what? You, you keep asking that question. Um, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> I'm afraid it's, uh, it's, it's continually one you keep coming back to. In a good way, though. <laughs> Do you find yourself bringing uh, your technical writing skills, your, your sort of formal sort of literature training, do, do, do you find you bring that into this current role? Do you, are, are you writing yes. a lot of reports and does that help you? Ama- like, oh, amazingly so much so that I think that this is something that people who work in technology don't always think about, but I work in threat intelligence and a large, extremely important facet of threat intelligence is communicating that intelligence to decision makers. If you know what's the intelligence, but you're unable to communicate it, it's useless. So we write a lot of reports. I have a lot of those skills from my previous work. So writing a report is not difficult for me. It's something I've literally used to do for a living and knowing exactly how to, to phrase technical situations in a way that everybody, including non-technical people can understand is something I'm very good at because I have historically been a non-technical person. So it's something that is very useful to me. The other people who work on my team are also very good at it. But my point in that is that a lot of them have tech backgrounds. They have degrees or jobs where they have worked in technology. And so they have that tech skill set, but they have to learn the writing and communication on the job. And I have the writing and communication and I had to learn the tech skill set on the job. And now all of us are pretty, like, we're good. You know, we all do the job and we're all very good at it. And we all have our things that we specialize in and we can help each other. But the point being, when it comes to working in security or technology and hiring for security or technology, there's a large swath, if you will, of skill sets that are needed. And nobody's going to have all of them for the most part. So finding people that have some of them, they can be trained up in the other ones, even if the ones that they're being trained up in are the technology ones. Yeah, so ha- have you found yourself in the same way that your colleagues were, were sort of helping you in the early days learn, you know, fill in, fill in gaps, if, if you will, with, with you sort of being sort of somewhat new to the industry? I, I, is, have the tables now turned? Are you now helping your colleagues be better communicators and, and helping them in their, their ability to, to pass this intelligence on into a way that people understand? Yeah, I think so. So I definitely have edited a few of my colleagues reports before, you know, they went on to the formal editing process and just kind of 
taken the time to sit with them and be like, this is what I'm changing and why. Like either A, it's grammatically incorrect and let me explain to you what grammatically correct would be. Or I'm saying this is unclear and we can make it more clear by saying this, or this is too technical. Like only a handful of people reading this are going to know what this means. And we need to simplify it into to layman's terms. And I think that people, I think people appreciate it. I hope either that, or I'm like the, the red pen girl who just comes in and like <sighs> ruins everybody's reports and they're all terrified to see me coming. But I do think that they appreciate it. What do you, what do you like to do, Emily? Yeah, I, uh, I do things. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Good answer. I, okay. So I really like, I, this is, believe it or not, I live in the Pacific Northwest. So I like hiking. I know. So does everybody in the entirety of the Pacific Northwest, but, um, I actually really like hiking and that's why I moved here from Texas. So that's something that I greatly enjoy. I, I like, I do things at home. Oh my God. I actually had made a list. This is sad. But at one time I made a list of like things I do for fun because when people <laughs> ask this question, I always forget. I, oh, you know, I like writing. I, uh, I did go to school, right. To be a newspaper reporter. I still like writing. So it's my, it's my goal one day to get a novel published, but, uh, that day may never come. And I play music, so I play several instruments. Um, and I like running. Uh, do I like running? I run. Whether or not I like it is questionable. <laughs> does, it, then, does anyone really like running? <laughs> I don't think so. I actually immediately want to ask, what genre novel would you write? You know, I think I would write a like um, mystery, like detective novel, because that's the kind of... I'm really into true crime, which also everybody, but I... Um, I like watching a lot of stuff about true crime, but then I'm also really in, am I admitting this? Probably. I'm also really <laughs> into like paranormal stuff and like Bigfoot and ghosts and like, what are they doing? And whether or not I believe in them, it's like usually no, but they're interesting stories. And I feel like there's this very interesting intersection of like detective stories and paranormal that is the X-Files, but could also be <laughs> a novel one day. So let's just wait and see. So from your background, Emily and your hobbies, it seems, you've got a lot of um, creativity, either in writing or music. So what are your final thoughts on how creativity comes into play in the cybersecurity industry or in your day-to-day job? That's a really good question. And I think it's super important, especially in intelligence, which is all I can speak to because it's really all I've worked in in security. But one of the key aspects of working in threat intelligence is seeing a bunch of different data points or seeing, you know, I might have a a couple of data points here from open source intelligence. I might see something weird on a machine and I might have an email and being able to connect the dots. And while that, that's not always something, you know, a machine can do, otherwise we'd all have been replaced by now, but um, there does, it does require this level of creativity and this level of being able to remember or kind of be like, I wonder if I, you know, could connect this email to this, you know, thing that's happening on this machine or like putting, I was talking about detective novels earlier. And I think that there's an aspect of that that kind of comes into play here too. That's also an aspect of creativity where you have to put the the pieces together. You have to be able to see something once. And then three days later, when you get, when you have a malicious email in front of you, you'd be like, oh my God, this reminds me of this thing from three days ago. There's also this level of creativity. I feel like that helps a lot of us. I was just talking about this with one of my coworkers yesterday, actually, about how one of the things that makes everyone on my team so successful, it is this level of like, I don't, I'm not going to, it's not by itself creativity, but I think it's a output from really creative people is like 
it's this like tenacity of like when I see something I have to get to the bottom of it. And I think that it's not just like, I'm not just going to like run one query and be like, oh, computer told me it's X. I'm like, but what is X? How do I get to the next part? What is it? How do I connect it to this Y over here? And like, do X and Y both connect over here to A maybe? And like, are they connected to this actor? Like, it's this level of just like making a story out of the information that's presented to me that helps me, I feel like, be successful as an intelligence analyst. And I feel like there's a, a level of creativity to that that I honestly didn't think about until I'd been in the industry for a while. Yeah, I think you see a lot of unending curiosity with security folks as well. Like you said, as soon mm-hmm. as you get one answer, it just opens up another question. Exactly. So, so Emily, you, you joined Microsoft in March of 2020, is that correct? Yes. So you, you joined just as the mandatory work from home yeah. order was I've coming I've never into place. ever been into the office. Wow. Well, okay. I went into the office on day one to pick up my laptop and then went home. But I've never, I started after the work from home. So I've never met, well, I, I've never met a lot of the people I work with in person. I've never, people always talk about the good old days of being on the office. Apparently there's like a fridge that has like bubbly water in it. One day I'll maybe drink it's this bubbly water. It doesn't exist. <laughs> we just tell that to people when they join the company and then they, when they come in and they the start and they just make you work yeah. from home where you're hey, where's this bubbly, bubbly fridge? There's a fridge with there's a fridge with bubbly water. No, it doesn't exist. You've been duped. So hang on. So I want to backtrack a bit because you talked about how you've got awesome colleagues and they've really helped you. Yeah. So you, that's your experience through completely through remote work. Yeah. So you, you've been able to join a new company, join a new team, being supported and had sort of great experiences with with colleagues through a 100% remote experience. Yep. I think one that's of the things that's been helpful is that there's a lot of new people on my team. So my team grew significantly around the time that I started. So me and another guy started on the same day. And then like four weeks later, another woman started. And then over the summer, we had two more people join. And so we were in this together, you know? And so it helped us we all were in the same, it wasn't like everybody else knew each other. And I was like the new person, like, Hey guys, like, let me join your conversation. Like we were all new. And so that helped a lot, but even the existing people on the team have been really, I don't know. I I don't know what word I'm trying to go for here, but they've been really open, I guess, to um, this remote work situation. The number of teams call screen shares I've done where I'm just like, help. I don't understand what this means. And anybody I talk to is willing to sit on the other end of a team's call and just walk me through what's happening. Like it has been honestly incredible. I'm really grateful for my team. I would like to go into the office one day, but I'd rather not be sick. And I am glad that Microsoft is taking precautions. So considering the circumstances, things have definitely been going really well. That's awesome. Well, Emily Hacker, thank you so much for being on Security Unlocked. We will uh, work out how to send you a case of bubbly water. (laughs) Thank you. Maybe then I won't go thirsty. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at Microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.